You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. continue to worship Christ. And to do that, let's just begin by looking at the text itself, John chapter 15. And we'll be studying today uh, 1518 through 164. I'll read this passage for you. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Well, brothers and sisters, believe it or not, I'm here to encourage you today. (laughs) And yet you read a text like that and you're thinking, wow, (laughs) what a depressing text. Is this really really the good news that we came to hear today, Uh, that we would be hated by the world? Well, I really just wanted to give you a reality check in case you sometimes feel like things are off. They are. They really are. And I wouldn't have you feel strange in that. A a text like this is a great lesson in expectation management. It reorients our affections and our anticipations for things that are more in line with what the Bible itself actually presents. And so in many cases, oddly, ironically, a text like this is actually affirming and encouraging not discouraging. And it'll take some time to see it. Admittedly, we live in a unique time in history. But it's not as unique as you think. 
Sociologists, anthropologists have surmised that ever since 2015, with Obergefell versus Hodges, Christianity is officially on the outer margins of social acceptability. Now, that seems new and strange to some because in the 50s and 60s, for example, it was actually a net gain to be a Christian. You wanted to be able to say that you went to this church or that you were a Christian. It would help you with business deals. It would get you into certain social circles that you otherwise would not have had access to. And, of course, that gradually declined, but its official death was about seven, eight years ago. And so now we find ourselves in a different world, a world in which claiming this close connection to Christ puts you at social odds with people. And what's weird about that is that it's weird. Because when you look at the Bible and the New Testament in particular, over and over and over again, this expectation is being communicated that if you follow Jesus, it's going to be hard it's going to be difficult. It's actually going to harm your social credit with other people. And so now we find ourselves in this new situation that actually isn't new at all. It's one that Jesus said would be true and had been true for 1,900 years approximately. And so we're back to the way things have always been. And the reason why we need to be reminded that it's not so crazy is because some of us experience these negative circumstances when we attempt to follow Jesus and we wonder if we did something wrong. Maybe you've experienced that. There's enough of Christian preaching going on where people actually think that to come to Jesus will make them healthier, wealthier, wiser more popular. And then some of us, it, it, like, a, like a virus, it kind of sits in the back of our minds, and so we start trying to fully follow Jesus, and then these things don't happen, and we're wondering, what I do? Did I mess it up? Am I not praying enough? Am I not living a holy enough life? Did I, is God somehow angry with me? And yet that's not the case at all. There's also another danger that this text will help us with, and that is uh, the farce that positive circumstances mean that something's going right. Just because you do happen to be healthy, financially secure, emotionally stable in the moment, doesn't necessarily mean that you are a faithful follower of Jesus. So the text provides clarity. And what we want to be able to see through this are just simply for reasons that we would actually expect hatred from the world. Four reasons that we would expect hatred from the world. And I want you to let every one of these reasons just adjust your expectations a little more and a little more. And you'll find that by the time we get to the end, we'll see some ways that this would actually encourage us, believe it or not, in the weeks to come. The disciples find themselves here in a unique position because they're getting their own lesson in expectation adjustment. They've been with Jesus now for three years, and they are expecting him to rule the world. I mean, it just seems like he was on this unstoppable trajectory to be the true Caesar, 
Like he's going to be the political ruler. And yet all of a sudden in these like last couple weeks of his life, he starts talking about dying and about how he's going to go away. And so he takes them apart with a special dinner and he actually explains to them, all right guys, we need to adjust some expectations here. I'm about to be gone, but it's gonna be good for you. And so that's what the farewell discourse is all about, farewell. He is trying to have them understand that they're actually gonna be in a great position even though he's gone. And so in John 15, we have that awesome passage about them being um, branches and he's the vine and he's gonna nourish them with life and they're gonna love one another and they're gonna see other people coming to Jesus, they're gonna bear fruit. And it just sounds like this is amazing, this is awesome. And it is, it really is. But he's reminding them of something. To become a new community around Christ is to leave the old community that did not belong to Christ. To draw near to Jesus is to draw far from wherever you came. And so here, instead of just stating the positive, he's going to be realistic and say, all right, guys, there is some expectations that you need to imbibe as you begin to follow me with one another in this new venture. And so he specifically gives them four reasons. The first one is that they belong now to an exclusive group. They belong to an exclusive group. Look at 18 and 19 again. He says, if the world hates you, and the Greek implies there that it does, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now I have to pause here and ask myself this question as I read. Now, what is there to hate about Jesus? Who hated Jesus? Why would you hate Jesus? I mean, so far, he showed up on the scene and he does nothing but good. I mean, he heals six sick children. He brings people back to life. He even turns water into wine. Like, who doesn't like a guy like that? I mean, there seems to be like no problem with Jesus whatsoever until he begins to get to the end of his ministry and there are a few things about Jesus that just would get on people's nerves inescapably. The first one was his authority. Jesus would speak in such a way that it wouldn't even allow anyone else to get a word in edgewise. You notice how, especially in the book of John, he's always saying, truly, truly, I say to you. I don't know if you understand what he's saying when he says that, but most people at that time would have perceived that as a pretty arrogant statement. Truly, truly, your Greek words, amen, amen, would have normally been spoken at the end of the synagogue lecture by the old guys sitting around the edge, and they would have said basically, thumbs up, we agree, this is good stuff, you have our approval. Jesus, of himself, before he ever speaks, says, amen, amen, <laughs> I say to you. This is official truth. So Jesus' authority rubbed a ton of people the wrong way, especially the religious rulers of the time. That's one reason why people hated Jesus. Uh, another one is pretty easy to see, and that was uh, the disgust of his death. They liked his dominance. They liked the idea that he would be able to feed people and have social impact. But then as he keeps forecasting along the way that he's going to die, 
people revolt against that. Even Peter, do you remember when Peter actually tries to stop him and says, Lord, no, forbid it. This, is, this shouldn't happen. So they don't like his authority. They don't like the fact that he's going to die. They don't like that kind of salvation that he's coming to offer. So he was different. And so Jesus here says, look, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And now, guess what? You belong to my group. They're going to hate you too. We're going to hate you too. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Now, the world, the world term is kind of weird because when we think of the word world, we think of the planet. And indeed, the Greek word sometimes referred to the planet, like the earth. Sometimes the word world referred to everybody that lived in the world. Like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Like all the inhabitants of the world, this was an expression of love. But in the book of John in particular, world takes on a special connotation. It isn't just the planet. It isn't just the people who live in it. It's actually this underlying principle of rebellion against God and his ways and the people who follow that. Like, it's this system of thought that, that rejects God's ways for their own ways. Uh, I like to think of it uh, in terms of the lunch tables at high school. Do you remember those? There were these groups, and there was an in-group and there was an out-group. Like, you were, according to Jesus here, at, at one lunch table. You were at the world's table. The world shares the same values, and they think you're cool. They think you're amazing. They love that you identify yourself as a self. It's funny, the Brian Rosner video today that you showed. Like, you're just doing you, and they're just doing them, and, like, you have the same identity, or you identify yourselves uh, sexually or racially or socioeconomically. Like, you can get into the same table there. Or, it's not just that, but to also get into the cool table, the world table, all you had to do was share the same values, like, you've got to go the same direction. Like, it's easy to eat lunch with the same people who want what you want. So if they want pleasure at all costs, you're in. If they want popularity at all costs, you're in. If they want profit at all costs, you're in. That's the world. You were a part of that, Jesus is saying, but I took you out of that group I took you from that table, and I put you at my table, and now you're no longer going to be identified by yourself. You're going to be identified by me. No longer will you strive for profit and pleasure and popularity, but you will actually strive for my holy purposes. And the world hates that. And you should actually expect that they will hate you for it. You know the old saying? Birds of a feather flock together. That is a biological reality. It's the way that God wired us. Like We associate with people that are like us because it makes us feel safe. Other people that are way different are perceived as a threat. And things that are not understood are often eliminated. And so as soon as you become this different bird, as soon as you are converted, as soon as Jesus makes you something different, Soon as you go to his table, now all of a sudden the world is looking like, I don't get this anymore. I don't like this. 
and there's hatred. And I would say this, friends, you're not at his table if you are at his table because of anything that you did. It is all by his grace. Just look up to verse 16 for a moment. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Notice that you didn't do it. It wasn't because of how great you were, because you somehow figured out the moral philosophy of life. It's only because Jesus initiated a love relationship with you. The Spirit came, made you aware of your sinfulness, and caused your eyes to look upon Jesus, who provided the righteousness that you could have never secured for yourself, died the death that you deserved on account of your rebellion against him, and rose again to assure that you have eternal life forever. Like the whole reason you're at the table is because of Jesus in the first place. And yet Jesus says, there's good with this, but you need to understand there's going to be some social cost. So expect hatred from the world because you belong to now a different group, an exclusive group. There's a second reason, a second reason to expect hatred from the world, and that is what I would call a condemning connection. It's an exclusive group. You're no longer in their group, but there's something else that makes it worse. It's similar, but a little different, this condemning connection. Now, we're going to look at verses 20 to 25. Don't read it yet. All I'm going to tell you about those verses is that um, if we were up north, I would say these verses are tough sledding. Does anybody know what tough sledding is? (laughs) It means it's really thick snow. For those of us who live in South Florida, I'm going to say it's thick sand on the beach. You know when you've got like the cart with all your junk on it? Like there's the thin sand and then there's the thick sand and you're just like dragging it and the wheels aren't even moving. Like this text is thick sand. There's a lot of ifs and thens and therefores. There's some really dense stuff going on here doctrinally. So let me, um, let me throw down a couple planks to help us get across it. There's two main themes that you want to see in these five verses. One is connection. John is going to show you in these verses that you're connected to Jesus, the Son. The Son is connected to the Father. There's connection, all right? You get it? Connection. The Father is connected to the Son. The Son's connected to his people. The second plank that I throw down for you is condemnation. If people hate the Son, they hate the Father. And guess what? It's a package deal. If they hate the Son and the Father, they hate you. So it's a condemning connection. He says, expect it. So let's just look at the verses now with these main themes in mind. And I start in verse 20, and he just, it's very simple. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Jesus had said this back in John 13, Right before he washed their feet, he says, the servant is not greater than his master. It's a simple, like, lesser to, uh, or greater to lesser kind of argument. Like, whatever happens to uh, the, the guy at the top of the, the organization will happen to the ones at the bottom. So I made the mistake the other day of watching a World War I movie with my children. And um, it's pretty gruesome. 
And, and what happens in a war context is whatever happens to the general will happen to the guys beneath him. If he's executed by firing squad, more than likely the guys will be executed by firing squad. If he's in prison, they're in prison. Like, you're a unit. And whatever happens to the head will happen to the people underneath. And so Jesus has said, look, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If I've washed your feet, if I'm going to come down and serve and slave for you, you're going to slave for one another. And he uses the same metaphor here to say, hey, the servant's not greater than his Lord. Like, if they're going to come after me and persecute me, they're going to come after you and persecute you. So you're seeing this connection. He says it. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. That one's confusing, admittedly. Jesus is probably being ironic here. He could be ironic too. He's basically saying, they didn't keep my word. They didn't obey me. And they're going to do the same for you. But look at verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Why are they going to do these things? Like, why is everybody so angry? Why is there such hostility? It says it's because they do not know him who sent me. Now, as just well-trained 21st century Western individualist, you see the word know and you think, oh, I know what that means. It's the intellect. And yet, in the first century collectivist culture of, like, the Jews, no doesn't just mean the intellect, it means relationship. So Adam knew his wife Eve, and she bore him a son. Remember that from Genesis? Knowledge is something that is intimate. It is something that is relational. This isn't that they don't have an intellectual conception of who God is. That's not why they're so ticked off. It's because they're not in relationship with him. They're, they're, they're not on, on like a personal knowledge. Like, I know of a ton of individuals. I know way less than that, and they know me. This, this is the word. And so he's saying, they don't know the Father. They, they just, they don't have a relationship. They don't care. They don't care. They're not in relationship with him. Notice verse 22. It make, he takes it further. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And that was a tough one. They're like, what? They weren't sinners till Jesus came? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, my coming was the smoking gun of their condemnation. Like, it was already suspected that they didn't really care for God or want any kind of relationship with him. But they could have played, like, uh, some excuses, kind of like some of my children do from time to time. I don't want to embarrass any of them, so I won't call any names. But we homeschool, and we have some kids who are like, oh, I like personal interaction. I want to be in a classroom. That's why I'm not learning very well. Others of them are like, just give me a book. I'll learn it. I'll get it. You know, we all have different learning styles. Basically, what happens here is uh, Jesus is saying, look, when I came, I removed all the excuses. You can't say that I needed to be in the classroom and therefore I didn't understand who God was. You can't say 
that, you know, I didn't get the book. I really needed a book. I didn't need to be in the classroom. Like, I, as the author of the book, I, as the teacher par excellence, I came as the perfect representative of God, and they rejected me, and as they rejected me, they will also reject you. They didn't want relationship with the Father, and my coming proved it. And as we tie this back to us, Jesus says in verses 23 and 24, Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. He's just saying that, you know, like uh, there's this thing, you can't make somebody like somebody. You ever tried that? Try to get your kids together and oh, you really like this other kid. It seems like the harder you try, the less they like them. Jesus is saying, like, look, let's just accept it. It's a relational thing. They don't want the Father. They don't want them. They, do, they don't want him. They don't. And you need to get it. it. It may not make sense to you. In fact, it just fulfills something that we see in the Old Testament. He's quoting from the book of Psalms here. It says, they hated me without a cause. That comes from one of David's psalms in which he, David, the King David, says that out loud. And you're like, well, what does that have to do with Jesus? What does David being hated without a cause have to do with Jesus? Because the Jewish people viewed David as the prototype for the coming ruler. Like, he was like the dude. I mean, if there was going to be a coming ruler, he was going to be like David. And so whatever happened to David is what they thought would happen to the next guy, to the, to the real ruler. And this is what they know about David. If you read through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, that guy can't get a break. Like sometimes it seems like he's doing all the right stuff and then people will just randomly like rebel against him and his government. They'll like turn him in. I mean, like he had a tough rule and he would often lament it in the Psalms and people began to associate the coming ruler with somebody like David. And they were thinking about him like he's going to experience also just unparalleled rejection. He's going to be rejected for no reason at all as well. It won't even make sense. And Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling everything that was true of David. It doesn't make sense. Sure. Why would they not like this? Don't know. Can't explain it other than sin. But guess what? You're connected to it. You're connected to the son. The son is connected to the father. They don't want a relationship with the father. They certainly didn't want a relationship with his son. Newsflash. Very often, they don't want a relationship with you either. There's a condemning connection. There's also another thing that ensures our hatred by the world. I know this is really positive. Don't worry, it's going to get better. That's our empowered testimony. Look at verses 26 to 27. As if this like static hatred wasn't enough, something's going to come along that will stir the pot even further. It says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. <laughs> now... Um, basically, he's, he's saying, in the face of uh, satanic hatred, 
that just already exist out there, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come and live inside you, and he's actually going to promote within you a testifying of the truth. And then we're really going to poke the bear. I need to do two things here. One, I need to explain to you the significance of the Spirit and what he does because he's been misrepresented so often. And then secondly, I need to tie that to how it affects our relationship with the world around us. First, let's talk about the Spirit. He says, when the Helper comes. And my translation here is a capital H. It's an all right translation, but I, the, the problem with it is when I see the word helper, like I, I think of like daddy's little helper, you know, like it seems like a diminutive, you know, kind of role, like somebody just comes along and helps, or uh, you think of somebody that you call to help you out when you're fixing your house. It almost seems like a buddy. So just because you added a capital H to it doesn't really help me understand that word. The Greek word is parakletos. And yeah, it certainly literally means someone who comes alongside, but as you see the way that it's used uniquely, um, it, it, it's, a little, it, it's a lot stronger, not little, it's a lot stronger. Other translations have tried to say um, the comforter, capital C. But I don't know what you think of when you hear the word comforter, but I think of the fluffy thing that sits on top of my mattress at night. That's not a very good picture of the spirit. Sure, the Spirit comforts, but the actual like, meaning of comfort when that word was first put into English translations, it was coming from the Latin confortare, con with, fortare, strength. With strength, not just with, with uh, nice, peaceful, easy feelings, but like to encourage, like to pour courage into. So that one doesn't work very well. Then the other one that you often see in translations is... Um, the, the, the paraclete, the, the counselor. You're like, oh, counselor. But you know what I hear there? I hear high school guidance counselor. And I don't know about you, but I didn't really listen to my high school guidance counselor. I thought that, that they just had a job. They were filling a role. And yes, the Spirit does advise and counsel. But I think all these words fall a little short. What exactly is he saying here? He's saying that there is not just a helper or a counselor or an encourager, but it's an authoritative one. Like the way that this word was used was not a subordinate coming to help or uh, a peer coming to help, but an authority coming to help. I like the legal language of a counselor because if you've ever been in legal trouble, you're not wanting to ask somebody on nextdoor.com what your next move is. You want somebody that's been to law school, that's passed the bar, and that has some, probably some pretty good reviews. You want an authority. The text is referring to an authority who's going to come and encourage and enable and help. And in what way does he do that? The text actually says that when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, he's the spirit of truth. He deals in truth. How does he help? He, he shows you the right stuff about Jesus and his word. He brings certain passages to mind at the right times. And here's exactly what's going to happen here. When the spirit of truth comes, it says that you also will bear witness. They're going to testify to him. 
They're going to speak of him. Now let me make the connection to the relationship with the world. Friends, you know this. The world doesn't give a rip that you believe in Jesus. They just don't want you telling them that they need to believe in Jesus. And what the text is saying is that when the Spirit comes upon you, you will testify. You will speak out about who Jesus is. And you'll say it correctly. You're not even just going to say, Jesus is Lord. They don't mind you saying, Jesus is Lord. You will say, Jesus is Lord alone. You not only will say, Jesus is Lord alone, but then you will also expect that those who cry out to Jesus as Lord alone live that way. We see it all the time. It's something that growing up in um, eastern North Carolina, it's like, Bible Belt, traditional Judeo-Christian values. I just had this like pretty cookie-cutter existence. And I remember like my parents, as people began to flaunt their sexual sin more and more, they were so angry about that. Even uh, the, the establishment of something called Pride Month. Like I remember my parents were just, Ugh. you know, they were so angry about people being proud of sin. And yet, it's funny how people can be so angry about that because the text is actually calling us to exercise a pride over who Jesus is. It isn't just we do our own little thing in our own secret community, but it's actually saying we're going to take it out to the streets. The Spirit's going to come and cause you to tell other people about it. And guess what? That's not going to bode well for you. But here's the cool thing. It'll do its work. Expect hatred. Because of this empowered testimony, they're not going to shoot you down. The gospel will go forward. There's one more reason, though, why you should expect hatred, and that is because it is a prophesied problem. Look at verses 1 through 4. There's no chapter break in the original, so don't worry, I'm not messing up. Verses 1 through 4, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Notice that. Jesus puts his prophet hat on here and says, hey, I'm about to call it. Are you ready? I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it before it happens. Here's how it's going to go down. They're going to put you out of the synagogue. Why is he telling them this? Is it so that they have a terrible week? Does he want them just to be, like, just really down? He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. You need to know that this is how it's going to go down or you're going to want to get out. I was talking to a dude yesterday. He's preaching at my church this morning. I've never met him in person until yesterday. That's a lot of trust, isn't it? We've talked online. And he's a, he's a missionary in Austria, and he was in this, like, punk rock band in um, Great Britain, like, in the early 2000s. And, like, they got a record deal and everything. Like, he had blue hair. Uh, and, like, it was just, like, he, he lived the life, and he's, like, the front man for this group. Uh, and he's telling me, like, his story, and I asked him, like, if he was a, a Christian, you know, like, when he was doing this or how all this came about. And he said he grew up in an Anglican church and he heard the gospel, you know, at a young age. Uh, and, he, and he actually started, like, trying to follow Jesus as a teenager. And he got to high school and they found out that he was a Christian and they roasted him on his first day. And he says, I never want to experience that again. 
And he said that's what caused them to go like head into whatever the world could offer. I was thinking about that. I never wanted to experience that again. Jesus is saying, look, I'm giving you the heads up now. This will happen. Don't, don't be surprised, but I'm telling you so that you know. They will put you out of the synagogues. And some of us are like, whew, good thing I don't belong to a synagogue. You know what a synagogue was? It was the social center of the Jewish community. They will remove you from the societal center. The synagogue was where you met all your, I mean, like met people for business. It's where you would find your wife or your husband. Like it was, it, it was like your credit card. Like if you wanted credit with other people in the community, you belong to the synagogue. And he's saying, we're going to, you will be marginalized. You will be alone from that group. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. You know this has happened through church history. You ever heard the name Bloody Mary? Mary Tudor actually thought she was doing a service to God and killing people who believe like you believe. In fact, one of the guys that she killed was a, name, a dude named uh, Thomas Cranmer. And, and at his, at his uh, roasting, they preached a sermon ahead of time in honor of it. They thought they were doing service to God. We saw this with even the Islamic State thinking that they're killing the infidels in service to God. It's not just that. Paul, Paul the apostle, he thought he was doing service to God by assassinating Christians. Everything that he said would happen did happen. And why, again, is he telling them this? It's because they don't know the Father or him, verse 3. And I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Don't be surprised by this. So Justin, all right, I'm getting it. I got the four reasons why does this matter. Maybe I just uh, finish it out by um, giving you those uh, four famous words from every good personal trainer. You know them? No pain, no gain. It's interesting that the health community embraces pain. They understand that if you're trying to get more flexible or more cut or bigger muscles, there has to be some pain. The right kind of pain. <laughs> Don't just go out there and like blow a hamstring because you didn't stretch properly, but like you, you know you're doing it right when you feel the burn. In fact, like young guys, like, we'll often, like, brag about that. Like, oh, man, I'm so sore. Like, ask me. Ask me why I'm sore. I squatted 300 yesterday. You know, like, people learn to lean into that because they're like, you know you did something right. People will actually chant to one another, feel the burn, feel the burn, feel the burn. Like, they know that you're doing it right. Friends, I'm simply reminding you from this text that if you're feeling the pain, you're not necessarily doing it wrong. You may actually be doing it right. 
If you, if you feel the loneliness and you're not as rich as you wanted to be and your social circle is a lot smaller than it was three years ago, you might actually be on the right track. You didn't mess it up. You did it exactly the way Jesus said you should. I'm not implying, by the way, that somehow your suffering provides salvation. Jesus suffered fully on your behalf. He's the one that has paid the full price of sin through his death and has given eternal life in his resurrection. You don't somehow like injure yourself to like get the grace of God. But here's the deal. Knowing that that is the price that he has paid for you and that it's already paid, he said, hey, to follow me is to take up your own cross. I always liked this reminder. I forgot who it came from, but it doesn't cost anything to join the army. You know, Jesus warned people about following him. He said, look, hey, just count the cost before you do it. He says, what guy goes and like builds a tower and doesn't see if he has the materials and money to finish it first? And what guy, like king, goes out to like fight with another like nation and doesn't like see if his soldiers stack up against theirs? Like, think about this. Like, it's free to get in the army, and you want to be on my team, but it will cost. So I give three simple encouragements to you. One, to those of you who experience little pain. The second is to those of you who feel some pain. And the others is to those of you who feel much pain. To the, those of you in here who feel little pain, uh, I want you to understand um, that Following Jesus doesn't mean that you experience pain and persecution all the time. I mean, I live over in Naples, Florida. I don't know of anyone that's been tortured or lied for Jesus in a jail in Collier County. I'm not trying to imply that we get it bad all the time. Even the book of Proverbs says that someone who lives righteously will receive the favor of those around them. But here's the deal. We would ex or not be surprised, I'll put it this way, when this kind of stuff happens. So, if you're a little pained here this morning, I'm not trying to say that you're just like you're somehow off. It's seasonal. It happens at different times. But here's what I am concerned about. Two things that may be causing you to escape pain in ways that are unfaithful to Jesus. The one is accommodation. Some of us love other people so much that we never actually say the truth. Like we we soften things. But we we massage things, and yet we should be bold about speaking the eternal truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. Beware, brothers and sisters, of the path of accommodation. I would also have you be aware, though, of the path of separation. Some of us don't feel any pain, even though we're like really crystal clear on the truth but we're crystal clear on the truth with a bunch of other people who are already crystal clear with the truth, and we don't ever like get out of our social circles enough to be salt. We're salt in a salt shaker. That's really salty, but it's really useless. Jesus says it needs to be out of the shaker. You don't need a light under a basket. You take the basket off. The light needs to penetrate the darkness. Some of you, are like you've got some awesome doctrinal positions, but no non-Christians know of them. Jesus would be warning you against that. Some of you are feeling some of the, the pain, indeed. Um, and I would just say to you, 
uh, as you, you feel this, <laughs> um, I want you to understand uh, that you are in a place of privilege according to the Lord Jesus. In fact, the apostles would rejoice when they experienced this because they felt like they had done something right. Some of us experience this pain not in ourselves, but on behalf of those around us. Can I clarify this and then we'll finish up? You know that Jesus here is talking to a group, not just to individuals. We're so individualistic that we read all the yous, Y-O-U, in this verse as me, myself, I, but they're actually y'alls. Y'all, y'all, y'all. It is plural all the way down. He said, you as the new community were experiencing this persecution. And here's the deal. You may not be experiencing right now, but maybe the new Christian who just lost his friend circle because he's decided to follow Jesus has felt it, and his pains should be your pains in the right kind of church. And you may be in Miami, Florida, which actually benefits from like a tolerant United States government. But you send people out to places like Laos and Indonesia where people can actually suffer for their faith. And now their pain has become your pain. When we experience this pain, whether it be personal, interpersonal, corporate, Jesus would actually have us understand that we're headed down the right road. We didn't mess it up. And it's something that we take with us into eternity. I conclude with this story from Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read it, it's worth your time. Just get an updated English version. Right at the end of this, the story, not the story that you think ends, but the end of the, the entire book. Book one is on Christian. Book two is on Christiana, his wife, at the end of book two. Christiana and the children are about to cross over the river which represents death, into the celestial city. And before they do, they sit on the bank and they watch the other people cross. And they see some of these great heroes of the faith about to approach death and make it into heaven. And one of those is Mr. Valiant for Truth. They had seen him on multiple times through their journey. And so as he's about to make his way into the water, he starts giving away all his stuff. So like he gives away like his courage to this guy and he gives away his Bible to this guy and he begins like to like he's divested himself of everything and he's about to step into the water and he says, but one thing I do not give away and those are my scars. My scars I take with me into the heavenly city as an evidence of God's grace in this battle. Brothers and sisters, those scars that you have, those pains that you feel, they're not problems. They may actually be positives, indications that you've done something right. Be encouraged. Expect hatred, but be encouraged that that is exactly the path that Christ has called you to follow.
Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.